American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Welcome. Welcome to another episode of American American Timelines. I'm Amy and that's Joe. That's who we are. And she's correct. She's not incorrect about who we are. That's right. And today we are going to talk about 1957. That's true. And the specifics are going to be what? July and August? Is that what we're doing? July and August. We are in the summertime of some, some, summertime of 1957 in American Timelines. And we talk about true crime. We talk about pop culture. We talk about history that's and right. stuff that's happening, and we just go through it and just like it's a learning podcast, really. All but, right, but we also sometimes make snide remarks. That's true. And this is a podcast for us, history for jerks. And if you're interested in our other content, check out the Nerd School podcast and the Gruff and Loud show on YouTube, which is a stupid show for Gen Xers who have short attention spans. Yes. Yes. That's a good way to describe that. (laughs) (laughs) It's starring the great Gruff, who's an awesome guy. He's like a living, breathing uh, Big Lebowski. Yeah. Anyway, check out July uh, 2nd, 1957. Uh, that's where we're going to be right now in our timeline in this episode. Okay. We're jumping in because there was a birthday. We're starting off with a birthday, All and it's your right. favorite birthday kind of birthday, Amy. Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. It's a wrestler's birthday. Oh, Jesus. The eighth child of wrestling patriarch Stu Hart and his wife, Helen was born in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, in the Hart Wrestling family. Do you know who it is? Bret Hart. Bret the Hitman Hart. You know him? I know of him. Oh I my wouldn't gosh. be able to pick him out in a lineup. You wouldn't? No. How do you know of him? Because you don't shut up about all these Whoa. people. Whoa. All these it's, people. It's part of like my psyche because you are always talking about them. Well, Brett the Hitman Hart grew up in a household with 11 Plus, siblings. Plus, we did this podcast through the 80s. Oh, that's so true. So, obviously, <laughs> I'm going to know who about he is. Uh, 11 siblings he had. 11, can you believe that? And he spent the majority of his childhood in the Hart family mansion, which was owned by his father, who trained all these other wrestlers. It was in the Hart dungeon. I probably oh should go gosh. to the dungeon. Uh, it was during, like a dynasty of wrestlers. Yeah. And during one period, his father was housing a bear oh my known God. as Terrible Ted, chained under the building. Jeez, the bear had thing. all of its teeth removed, and Hart, Hart would sometimes, what? as a very young child, let the bear lick ice cream off its toes. Why did they take its teeth Since out? Since he thought that was a good way to keep them clean. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. That this, is really cruel. The first I heard of it I don't like was, that at all. This was all on, um, this was on Wikipedia. They probably took his teeth out so they could have a tame bear. Well, maybe he saved the bear. I don't know why he had the bear, but this was all... It's <sighs> gross. It was, it was, I found it on Wikipedia, but... That part came from uh, from Slam Wrestling Magazine, Canadian Online Explorer, an article called Positive Heroes, Key for Kids. And I guess that was oh Bret Hart. Bret the Hitman Hart was a positive hero who let a toothless bear lick his feet. Anyway, and then um, that brings us to 
July 6th, 1957. And have you ever heard of Ivan Vaughn? No. Ivan Vaughn. You sure you never heard that name? I'm pretty sure. He was a boyhood friend of mm-hmm. John Lennon mm-hmm. and later a schoolmate of Paul McCartney at the Liverpool Institute. Mm-hmm. Uh, both commencing school there in September. They both commenced school there in September of 1953. But uh, he was born in Liverpool on the same day as Brian McCartney. I mean, Brian McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> Paul McCartney. And the Freudian slip, our friend, we have a friend named Brian McCartney. If you're listening. Uh, there you go. I love him. He's, you're always on his mind a little bit. And Brian McCartney is officially better than Paul McCartney yeah. in every way, like skill-wise. Like, he's a great person. If you've ever met him, friend of the show, if you've met Paul McCartney, tweet us at History for Jerks. Brian McCartney, you mean. If you've met Brian McCartney. I'm getting it all mixed up. This is Paul, Paul McCartney I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Ivan Vaughn was born on the same day as Paul McCartney, and he went to school with him. And he grew up with John Lennon. Anyway, he played T-Chess bass part-time in Lennon's first band, The Quarrymen. And he was actually responsible. George Harrison, you're talking about? No, no, Ivan Vaughn. Oh, okay. He was responsible for introducing John Lennon, who was then 16, to Paul McCartney, who was 15, at a community event, the Woolton Village 50, on July 6th, 1957. That's where Paul and John met, thanks to Ivan Vaughn. That's what happened on this day where the quarrymen were performing. McCartney, having just turned 15, impressed Lennon by knowing all the lyrics to Eddie Cochran's song, 20 Flight Rock. And with his accomplished guitar playing, Lennon decisively invited McCartney to join the band, which, following a night's sleep, he conveyed through Vaughn that he accepted the offer. This is all according to www.andmeetings.com. It's like a blog. It's a website for meeting space, I think. But they're talking about where people oh. met. So they have a blog about people met, which is okay. and the Beatles Bible <coughs> contributed to that information as well, which is another website. Anyway, uh yeah, so I don't know if you've ever heard of a group called the Beatles, but that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Ivan Vaughn. Okay. And so now you'll know the name Ivan Vaughn and don't you ever say you didn't learn anything on American timelines by history for jerks. And then on July sixteenth, nineteen fifty seven. Yes. U.S. Marine Major John Glenn. You ever heard of him? Uh, astronaut? Yeah. At this point, he wasn't an astronaut yet. He was just a U.S. Marine Major. Okay. And he set the transcontinental speed record. Running? Transcontinental, no. So, transportation across the continent. So, it wasn't running. It took him. No, no. No, it, he went from the West Coast to the East Coast in three hours and 28 minutes. Not running. Nobody can run from California I know. I'm just teasing. to New York in three hours. You're not teasing. Anyway, I, it was the morning of July 16, 1957, and he strapped into a Vought F-8U Crusader and took off from Los Alamitos Naval Air Station in California like a cannon shot. Three hours and 23 minutes and 8.4 seconds later, uh, he touched down at Floyd Bennett Field in Brooklyn, New York, setting a transcontinental speed record. So at the time, that was unbelievable. I mean, still three and a half hours is pretty quick. Very difficult to do. Yeah. Uh, the speed record was 725.55 miles per hour. Wow. At a time when aviation records were still a big deal in both the media and in geopolitics, the feat put Glenn on the radar just before selections would be made for the first class of astronauts. So that kind of... Hold on. I'm losing my... Oh, the dogs are with us now. So if you enjoyed last episode hearing our yeah. dogs growl and wrestle... You might be in for that now. Right now they're calm. Right now they're just calm on the couch in the garage where it is very cold. It is a balmy fifty-two degrees out here with the heat on, with the heater on. 
and we can't really bitch because the entire country is in a yeah. blizzard conditions. Or Lots something. of our friends and family up in Ohio are dealing with negative, very wind very chills. yeah. And our friend Brendan Kane, who's a beautiful guy with a hairless torso, he is in uh, Kansas. Kansas. Uh, he his wind chills like negative thirty or something. That's where it's, you're headed this weekend. I'm not going to Kansas. You're going to Ohio. I'm going to Ohio. Yeah, where it would be cold. Anyway. Uh, have you ever heard of the July 1957 Miss USA pageant scandal? No. There was a scandal. Ooh. Wait till you hear what it is. It's not as exciting as you seem to be anticipating. Um, <laughs> on July 7th, 19, 17th, 1957, at the end of the pageant, Mary Leona Gage of Maryland was declared the winner mm-hmm. and was crowned by the outgoing title holder Miss Universe 1956 Carol Morris of Iowa. Okay. The following day... Rumors Uh-oh. about Gage's past and current circumstances began to circulate. An investigation was launched by pageant organizers. It was discovered that Gage was 18, not 21, as she had claimed. Oh. While her mother and her mother-in-law confirmed she had been married twice. What? And was the mother of two young children. At 18? At 18. Oh my god. As all of these were violations of multiple contest eligibility rules. Number one, you can't have been married. You probably have to be a virgin or something. Yeah, you can't be you have to I think you have to be twenty one. You can't have had kids. You can't yeah. you have to can't be married. Yeah. Uh Gage was immediately disqualified. And the title and the associated prize package automatically passed to the first runner up, Charlotte Sheffield of Utah. The oh other three god. finalists were moved one place. Yeah. And the highest-scoring semifinalist, Catherine Gabriel of Ohio, began the fourth runner-up. Unfortunately, by the time the scandal broke publicly, the Miss Universe preliminary judging had already taken place, oh. with Gage chosen as a semifinalist and allowed to participate pending the results of the investigation. It was too late for Sheffield to compete, poor Sheffield, and it would be the only time the United States had not been represented at the Miss Universe pageant. Jeez. Later that year, Beauty pageants are so weird. Later in the year, Sheffield was sent to London as the USA contestant for Miss World 1957, but she failed to place. What mm-hmm. a failure! Yeah, um, you know when I was a little kid, I loved watching Miss Universe pageant. I did too, but not for the same reason. Not for the same you. reasons. Yeah. yeah, I loved the swimsuit competition, and I will say I liked the evening gown competition. My, I think my father and grandfather misogynistically. Groomed us to enjoy it too. They're yeah, like, hey boys, Miss Universe, let's turn it, put it on. Well, let's wait for the. the we just, we would just wait for the swimsuit mm-hmm. part and then turn it off. Mm-hmm. Honestly, like so. That's you probably terrible. fast forward through the question and answer. Well, section. you couldn't fast forward back that's then. True. You just had unless you taped it, I guess. But sometimes you didn't have it. But in the eighties and so we would watch it. I remember watching it. Yep. Just for my dad. Oh, look at her. Oh, yeah. Never once did I think there was anything wrong with that, that she right. just objected. Oh, I never did either. Women in their bathing suits. And well, but and my dad being like a Weirdo probably about a 40, it. 50 yeah. year old man watching these 18 year olds. Uh, but yeah. now that we know better, not, but they still do these pageants and they still I know. do that. I yeah. mean, it's, it's pretty, I don't know. I guess they have bodybuilder things where they're half naked. I don't know. It's, too, it's but, just weird. That's weird too. Those are weird too. Yes, to me. they are. I mean, no offense, bodybuilders, but uh, I don't. I don't get it. It's just not a thing I get. Yeah, I don't either. 
Yeah. Okay. So that moves us to uh, Amy's little story that uh, you're welcome for me finding for you. On July 20th, 1957, I understand you are going to tell me something about Tell you a little uh, tale. Sports, a sports event. It, sort of, yeah, right? get, get your boner already because it's, cause it's a got a sport issue going on with it. It's involved because you used ESPN, right? You looked I did. At ESPN my main for, uh, my main source was Mark Schlabick. Mark uh, Schlabick wrote an article for, on ESPN, and this is I, about oh man, I just blow me over and tie me in the river. I never thought I know it that my wife would ever be on ESPN's website. You're right about that. Well, I'm proud of you. I'm telling the story of Bobby Hoppy. I think it's Hoppy. Bobby Hoppy? Did you like? Well, because they it, at one it? point they called him Hippity Hoppy, so that makes sense if it's Poppy. I'm gonna just type in Bobby Hoppy pronunciation and see what okay. happens. Here we go. How to pronounce dot com. Let's see what they say. Bobby Hop. Hop. They say Hop. Bobby. Uh, Bobby Hop. Hop. Okay, it's H O P P E. So anyway, according to how to pronounce yeah. uh, dot com, they say Bobby Hop. Hop. Okay, so we'll just we'll go with that for now. And then if if you are a big fan and you know him personally, uh, tweet us. Nobody's at Hesley Verjerks or contact us on Instagram. All right, ne- anyway, it's Insta. July twentieth, nineteen fifty seven. Okay, July twentieth, nineteen fifty seven. And this is exciting. Uh, Bobby Hoppy, he is he goes to Auburn University. Okay. He's a halfback. Ooh, that, that's football star. Oh, he's a football player. I everybody, was, everybody loved him. Yeah, that was a baseball player. I don't know why I thought that. Um, <clears throat> was driving home to his parents' house in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Okay, this is like one a.m. And it, while he's a college student, right? And then he feels this car come up behind him with its headlights on. It's getting real close to him. Okay. So then it comes around and pulls up next to his car. This is before the highway system probably, right? So it's on backcountry roads. I don't know. I don't know. Don't ask those kind of questions, please. I won't ask those kind of questions from here on out. So they're on Bell Avenue. Okay. Guy pulls up next to him, and he he recognizes that the guy is Don Hudson. And he was um, a reputed bootlegger in the area. Oh. But he was also dating Hop's older sister. Oh. So at first, he thought it was just some old high school buddies trying to scare me. Yeah. This is what Sherry Hop, his widow, says. Okay. That's what he had said to her. Then the car pulled up beside him. Mm -hmm. He looked out the window and he saw Don Hudson pointing a gun at him. Whoa. A guy he knows dating his sister and now he's pointing a gun at him. Yes. So then Bobby speeds up, yeah, and that causes Hudson to back off. But then his Hudson's car accelerated again, yeah, and they kept doing that, like going like yeah, chase kind of like a chase, like right waving a gun. And then the third Scary. time, Bobby, according to Bobby, he thought he's either going to kill me or I got to do something. Yeah, and so but he, he doesn't know why, right? He doesn't right. Sort of know why at this point. Okay, I, that's I don't know. Yeah. yeah, so he remembers he's got a shotgun in the back seat. Oh, so he pulls the seat over and was it a sawed-off shotgun? Hand on the pump. Put and he puts it on the windowsill, the the gun, and he thought I'm going to just fire it. I don't want to hit him, but yeah, I want him to know I've to got a, a gun, warning, like a warning shot. Yes, so he pulls the trigger, uh-huh. and then he sees the car speed up. Yeah. And then crash into a utility pole. Oh. So yeah. then. Bingo hit him. The next morning, Bobby learned that Hudson had died from a gunshot blast to his head. Oh. Later According that day, Bobby. later that same day, Bobby yeah. left for Auburn, Alabama to report for training camp before his senior season with the Tigers. So he, he doesn't call the police or anything? No. So. 
So the shooting was a secret that he kept buried for 31 years. Oh, really? You're a- kidding. Yeah. After returning to Auburn, he, just, think he told tell? just one person. He would... told the Baptist minister. Really? And and that was only after the preacher told him he would keep his story a confident. Oh, my gosh. Would you t- would you have told? Told somebody? who? Anyone? Oh, God, yes. Like if he I, was I shooting. something like that to if myself. If he was shooting at you or some person's waving a gun at you, it's yeah. self-defense. Yeah. So Sherry, who he married in 1972, yeah. she didn't learn the full details of the incident until 15 years after their wedding and only after Bobby was tipped that the case was being reopened by the cold case unit. By the way, I shot a man. And this was because of um, Donald Hudson's mom was asking them to reopen the case. So that's what they were doing. I can't believe they would. Okay, I can't wait to hear what happens because how would they ever know? Why would anyone think he would ever be? Why he would, yeah, I mean, if they were friends or whatever, he dated his sister. I don't know. So no um, Sherry is quoted as saying, I knew he had something on his mind a lot because sometimes he would just withdraw and didn't want to talk at all. Kind of like me. We were very, very close and did almost everything together, but there were times when he withdrew. That's like us. I knew there was something going on that he did not want to talk about, but I had no idea what it was. It's kind of like sometimes during the podcast when I withdraw. So finally, Bobby shares his secret with Sherry. Um, At the time, it was believed that the nearly 31-year gap between Hudson's death and Bobby's indictment for first-degree murder was the longest in U.S. history. Really? There's no statute of limitation for murder in Tennessee. Really? That's good. I don't think there ever should be a statute of limitation. I don't know if there's one anywhere anymore. Really? I think there is. I don't know. I don't. I so don't know. Sherry was worried that she she was worried that he was going to go spend the rest of his life in prison because of this. Right. Um, <clears throat> and she believed him completely. Right. That, it was, a, that yeah. it was self-defense and all that. Yes. Okay. So the details of um, deets, as I like to call it. Wait, hold on, hold on. I will. I lost hold my on. place. I, that's okay. I will fill the silence with so random babbling. Even before we're going to go. A little bit of background on Bobby, just for a quick second. Yeah, because I th- I really want to know if he's trustworthy. I mean, so he was a football star even before he enrolled at Auburn. Okay, he was nicknamed Chattanooga Choo Choo and Hippity Hop by <laughs> local sports writers. Hippity Hop. He led Chattanooga Central Wait minute, High. Wait a minute. Did you did you say that you thought it was Hippity Hoppy? Yeah. And that's because of that nickname. That's why you thought it was Hoppy. Yeah. But doesn't hippity hop sound a lot Make more? more sense. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I thought it was it was either hoppy or hopey. That's why I said it like that. Okay. That's okay. I don't that's okay. I'm not judging you. I just you are judging me. I think it's kinda cute that you thought it was hippity hoppy. All right. Anyway. <laughs> so anyway, he um led his high school to three consecutive state titles from nineteen fifty one to nineteen fifty three. That's impressive. Still doesn't Bear any weight on whether or not you're a murderer. He's exceptionally fast and tough. That's Legend has mm. it that when Bobby lost five teeth in one play, he simply handed them to the coach on the sideline and went back in the game. Ooh. That's yeah. why football, uh, that's a weird sport that I love. I don't know why I love it. I, know. I feel bad that I love it. I know. Bobby was offered scholarships by nearly every college in the South, but he chose Auburn because that's where he was most comfortable. Because he grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood uh-huh. in North Chattanooga. Like me. And yeah. his father was a World War II veteran. He was disabled in the war and he was a big drinker. Mm-hmm. And he the dad never went to any of his games in high school or football. I mean uh-huh. high school or college. He visited okay. a lot of the schools, but when he went to Auburn and walked out and saw a lot of students in blue jeans, which is what he had on, he thought he'd fit in. Yeah, fit in with more blue collar people. Yeah, blue collar people are more comfortable with blue collar people generally. 
So at Auburn, he was a devastating blocker and electrifying runner as the right halfback. This part's all cut and pasted because I have no because idea. Because you this don't means. know what any of that means. With players going both ways back, that with players going both ways back then, yeah. he also was a punishing defensive back. Okay. So I guess you play both. Yeah, you play offense and defense. Yeah, a lot. I did when I was in high school. We did. We played both ways. You didn't want to be around Bobby Hopp, a former Georgia coach, Vince Dooley, an assistant at Auburn from 1956 to 63, said he was one tough son of a bitch. Off the field, his teammates remembered that he was reserved and mostly kept to himself. There were also at least two incidents that involved a gun. Back then, Auburn's players lived in duplexes. One day, Bobby shot a pistol through the ceiling, and the bullet ricocheted into one of the adjoining rooms. Jeez. The teammate who was living there was not happy. I wouldn't be happy either if bullets were flying at me. He said that the, then Bobby was laying in bed, and the teammate came in there with a straight razor and put it right up against Bobby's neck Whoa. and told him if he fired another gun through the ceiling, he'd slice his neck off. Yikes. So that was the first incident. I wouldn't have for that guy. Then anymore. there was another incident where Bobby fired a gun in his room. We were running in to see what was going on, and Bobby was laying in the bed with a forty-five. There was a roach crawling across the ceiling. He decided that roach was in the way, so he popped him and killed the roach, but shot a hole yeah. in the wall and scared the devil out of so many people. Now that's, that one, I'm going to say, I'm good with that. Yeah, that one is fine with me. I knew you'd be good with that because you, yeah, you don't. Violence goes out the window when it comes yes. to bugs for you. Yes. You're like you're yes. cool with violence then. Bobby's teammates also remembered his softer side, too. Now, here's where you're oh, going to... Um, soft? Your, your opinion side. might change. Okay. Um, during his time at Auburn, Bobby befriended an older black man named Hodge Freeman Drake, who was affectionately known around town as Doc Hodge. Huh. According to the Auburn University Library, Drake dispensed shoe shines and Auburn spirit from his varsity barbershop station for 40 years. Clapp remembered okay. Drake leading cheers with his cane in the colored seating section of the stadium during games. Oh gosh, yeah. Bobby and Drake were often seen together riding through town in Drake's 1938 Buick. Drake also carried a cigar box, which he used to collect money from players. Okay. Bobby would bring him into the dining hall, and Doc Hodge would take his hat off and go around, Pittman said. If he came out, hold on, I thought I had to turn that off, sorry. If he came out with less money than they thought he should, Bobby would go back in with him and hit people up again. So he would... You just help this guy get money. And yes. Stuff, like. When Auburn players were boarding a train for a road game during the 1957 season, a conductor wouldn't let Drake on because the cars were segregated. Yeah. Bobby got off the train and said he wasn't leaving without Drake. Other Auburn players soon joined him in protest, and eventually the conductor relented and let Drake ride with the oh, Tigers. Cool. During Bobby's senior year, the Tigers finished 10-0 ten, and won their first SEC championship. The defense posted six shout shutouts and <laughs> surrendered just 28 points. It's hilarious. Seven came on an spots. interception return. <laughs> After beating rival Alabama 48-0 in the Iron Bowl, the Tigers were declared national champions by the Associated Press. Wow. Because they were on NCAA probation because an assistant coach had been accused of giving $500 apiece to twin brothers as recruiting inducements. I'm sure he did. They weren't permitted to play in a bowl game. Still, the Tigers were national champions, and Drake led the town celebration at Tumor's Corner. Bobby left Auburn only a few weeks later. So then when he came back here carrying all of that emotional baggage, this is a quote. Yeah. On. Sounds like a Dr. quote. Dr. Wayne Flint was a professor in the history department. He said, when he came back here carrying all that emotional baggage, I can't imagine what the season was like except for the fact that you move from game to game and as a football player under Suge Jordan or anybody else in that era, you're so completely consumed by football, you don't have time to think about memories or what happened football. two weeks ago, much less two months ago or three months ago. Yeah. So then he was drafted by the 49ers in the third round in 1958 draft. The San Francisco 49ers. Yes, and was traded to Washington the next year. Then he got injured 
And then he was out of football by the next season. And yeah. Then he returned Most to Auburn, finished his degree in 1961, okay. coached football at high schools in Georgia, and everybody liked him. He was really funny and all this stuff. Everybody liked him except the guy he murdered. Well, that's right. So he could be, he had a dual personality, people would say. He was funny, yeah. but also he had this other personality. And so then on, in 1987, sh- sh- that's when Sherry learned. about. That's when he told her about? <clears throat> yes. Because in, yeah. right before they got married in 1972, Bobby had told her that he had been, uh, once been accused of killing a man. Oh. And he told her, I didn't never kill anybody. Oh, so he lied to her. Or he said, I never murdered anyone. His name had actually emerged during a coroner's inquest into Hudson's death on August 8, 1957. Huh. He and three other witnesses invoked their Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination and declined to testify. A witness who had loaned Hudson a car on the day he was killed told the jury that Hudson told him that someone had threatened his life over a dispute with a girl. Another man testified that he had traded a shotgun to someone for a pistol on the day Hudson was killed, but he couldn't identify the man. Hmm. The seven-person coroner's jury concluded that Hudson was killed by a person or persons unknown, Hmm. and the case remained inactive for more than three decades until Georgia Hudson approached Chattanooga Police Detective Richard Heck about her son's death at a support group for the families of murder victims in 1986. Yeah. So she gets them back on the case. Oh, but she doesn't have any idea who did it. She's just trying to get... At that time, no. Yeah, okay. So, um, So back then, in 1957, in Chattanooga, liquor was still outlawed. Okay. Um, Donald Hudson was... He was the kind of troublemaker that police might have been happy to see go away. Okay. Um, So they're not He had been arrested four days before his death. He was accused of transporting unstamped liquor and driving a car that overturned while running from the police. So they're probably not motivated to even find the... That's right. And in 1953, he had been sent to federal prison for violating liquor laws. And two years later, he and another man were accused of kidnapping and beating a 32-year-old man. Oh. Could you, so, could you imagine if prohibition... Still... I mean, I guess it's the same with weed now. Yeah. Like, I think people the still... Everybody still difference. drank. They still, yeah. you know, did it. They he also lost that. his little finger on one hand in a shooting incident in January 1957. Who? Don or Hop? Uh, Do, uh, Hudson, yeah. Hudson, Don Hudson, the guy. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then, on the other hand, Bobby was this really well-known, well-respected yeah, kid. Yeah, hero. Like a hero yes. to everybody. And yeah. the police didn't want to indict him in 1957. They didn't want to, you know, ruin his future. But then, when they reopened the case, his football was, a you know, a thing of the past. So, that wasn't, you know, they they maybe were more interested in looking yeah, for the truth. because he's not a current hero right now. Right. He's not going to be playing in your local game, and you don't need... You know, him to save the day. So after a 14-month investigation, Bobby was indicted by Hamilton County Grand Jury for first-degree murder So uh, in March 1988. But why, like, who, how did they? I think they went to, I think they they went, when he told his wife. His wife said something to somebody? I think like that's. How did they indict him? Like, how, how did they find out? Well, let's keep going. Okay, keep going, yeah. All right. Um. Before he turned himself into the police, he confided to his wife that, yes, he had shot Hudson in self-defense. And then Sherry said, of course, my mind just went into a whirl. He told me he had never murdered anyone. Well, it took a while, but then I realized and was fully sympathetic. He had never murdered anyone. He had killed Donald Hudson in self-defense. Um, 
So police had uncovered new evidence that had been unknowingly sitting in their files all along. Oh. Nine years after Hudson was killed, Leroy Kington, the chief of detectives in Chattanooga, had taken a statement from a man about Bobby's alleged involvement. Oh. The man was Joseph Godwin, the 37-year-old Baptist minister that had heard Bobby's confession about oh, firing the gun at Hudson. Right. So that's why. I forgot about that guy. Yeah. Godwin had been taking summer classes at Auburn in the summer of 1957. Kington told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that he took Godwin's statement to a grand jury, which had declined to indict Bobby in 1966. Really? Before the trial, Bobby's attorneys argued that he had been denied the right to a speedy trial because police had been sitting on Godwin's statement for years. That's true. Much of the case file had disappeared, and many witnesses were dead. Others still refused to cooperate with police and prosecutors. Nonetheless, prosecutors believed Bobby had motive to kill Hudson because he believed that Hudson had abused his older sister. Oh, uh, there, there it is. There's That's the, the motive, yeah. yeah. Bobby's attorney, Bobby Lee Cook, stunned prosecutors during opening arguments when he told the jury that his client had indeed killed Hudson, but only in self-defense after Hudson pointed a gun at him. Yeah. One witness testified that Bobby was at her house and made a threat against Hudson only hours before he was killed. Yeah. Another woman testified that Hudson had threatened to kill Bobby for breaking up his relationship with Bobby's sister. Cook tried to prevent Godwin from testifying because of a Tennessee law that protected the confidentiality of conversations with ministers. Oh, yeah. The judge allowed Godwin's testimony, however, and told the jury, Bobby told me the killing was done by shotgun. He shot the man in the face. The man was in a car. The car wrecked. Bobby's attorneys claimed someone from People magazine had called Godwin and promised him $200,000 for his story if Bobby was convicted. Oh. Prosecutors claimed no such offer was made. Um, so then they had closing arguments. Um... The assistant district attorney said Hoppy Hop killed Hudson because he's tired of hearing about Don beating up his sister because it embarrasses him because he's a star. So he slows down because he knows Don Hudson's behind him. Hudson pulls around him. Ladies and gentlemen, what does he see? What does he see? He sees Mr. Hop with a shotgun and he tries to speed up and boom, what happens right in the eye? Good shot. Wow. Evans noted that police didn't find a pistol in Hudson's car at the scene. And he argued that it would have been impossible for Bobby to pull the shotgun over his seat, load it, and fire it while driving like he had testified he had done. Bobby's uh -huh. attorneys claimed he was unable to do it in a courtroom reenactment because he had suffered a heart attack and had arthritis. Huh. In the end, the judge declared a mistrial because the jury couldn't reach a verdict. Jurors told reporters they were deadlocked on a 10-2 vote for acquittal. Although Bobby wasn't convicted and wasn't going to prison for the rest of his life, he wasn't satisfied. His widow says, we were devastated. We wanted it to be what it should have been, which was not guilty, because he did not murder Don Hudson. He killed him in self-defense. Huh. So I don't he's, know. she said he struggled with guilt the rest of his life. Yeah. Um, I don't know what I believe. I know. It's hard. It's kind of like you don't. I can see that Don guy probably did beat his sister. Yeah. But I'm, I'm a little sad that. It's more that he was embarrassed by it more than rather than just you don't fuck with my sister, you know. Like, I know. So, yeah. I mean, who knows what what the truth is? I mean, there. Yeah. So that, I mean, that makes it seem like he just murdered him and then just said it was self defense. Especially but unless, if they didn't find a pistol in Don's car. I know. Come on. Don. I mean, maybe he went. Maybe he went to scare him, and he didn't mean to shoot him to yeah, kill him or who something. Knows. Yeah, well, that was a good uh, riveting story. I think. There you go. Thank you for that. You're well. You're welcome, good sir. Work. You're a good storyteller. You're welcome, sir. And just, uh, <laughs> sorry, sir. Uh, <laughs> are you gonna start calling me sir? From now yeah. On? Well, let's just let's. I, everything else I have are just little highlights of 1957 that are just notable things. So let's let's go. Up. July and August, July 21st, 
Uh, I don't know if you remember when we had. I think it was. I think. I think it was Tiffany Bryant Jackson that was a uh, guest on our podcast where she mentioned the first black person to win a major U.S. tennis tournament, Althea Gibson. Didn't she talk about Althea Gibson? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think she did. Yeah, so that's July 21st, 1957, something that happened. The same day that... Amy, Amy hates birthdays. Amy hates birthdays. The great and powerful John Lovitz was born in the Tarzana neighborhood of Los Angeles to Harold and Barbara Lovitz. I don't know if you know this about John Lovitz, but his family is Jewish. I did know that. And he, uh, you did? Mm-hmm. And they, his family emigrated from Romania, Hungary, and Russia. And his paternal grandfather, Fivel Lanklulovici, left Romania around 1914. That's where they got Lovitz. Lanklulovici. They and they just Americanized it, yeah. yeah. Americanized it to Lovitz. Uh, yeah, so John Lovitz, uh, he's the best. And I don't know if you know this, but in college, John Lovitz uh, was friends with David Kudrow, the brother of Lisa Kudrow, and went on a backpacking trip across Europe and Israel with him in 1978. Oh, wow. So how about that? Little known thing about uh, John Lovitz. All and, and then a little bit later in 1979, uh, he became a member of the Groundlings comedy troupe where he befriended his future SNL castmate, Phil Hartman. Who's sadly no longer with us. I wish yeah. he was still around. He's the best. And then uh, July 29th, 1957, Jack Parr's The Tonight Show premieres on NBC. Yes. 1957, yeah. Jack Parr. Uh, and then that brings us to August. On August 5th, American Bandstand premiered on it. Oh, Network wow. TV. Uh, and the same day as the comic strip Andy Cap makes its debut. So all these all the pop culture things are in existence now here in 1957. August 7th, 1957, Stan Laurel of the legendary comedy duo Laurel and Hardy refused to ever perform publicly again because of his friend's death, Oliver Hardy, Aww. died on August 7th, 1957. He, w- he said he would never perform publicly without Oliver Hardy. So Aww. we lost Laurel and Hardy that day. That yeah. Oliver Hardy died. He was only like 50. No, wait a minute. Like, which one died? The fat one or the, the fat one? Oliver okay. Hardy died. Okay, I get him. And he was only like I get him mixed up. Yeah, yeah. Laurel's the skinny one. Okay. Hardy's the fat one. Uh, and the same day that Oliver Hardy died, August, uh, on August seventh, Congress passes the Civil Rights Act of nineteen fifty seven, which yes. causes all kinds of hubbub and stir and yes, strife. Uh, but it's important that it happened. Yes, it is. August seventeenth, nineteen fifty seven, the Philadelphia Phillies. This is a great one. It's not great, but it's great. Philadelphia Phillies star outfielder Richie Ashburn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know why it's so funny to me. It's tragically funny. He hit the same fan twice with oh foul God. balls in the same at-bat. Oh, my God. So he's playing against the New York Giants at Connie Mack Stadium, and the first foul ball broke the woman's nose. Oh, Jesus. And she stayed there? So, Well, after brief... <laughs> no, listen, so she didn't stay there. I don't. It's, I shouldn't be laughing, but it's funny. It's not funny. It's one of those tragic funny. So after a brief delay for medical staff to attend the lady, 
Ashburn lined the next pitch foul, hitting the woman as she was being as she was being carried off on a stretcher. Oh my God! So she was in a different. She was in a stretcher being carried off, and another foul ball hit her, and that that ball broke a bone in her leg. Oh my God! That poor woman. The woman get me the fuck out of here! Jesus Christ! The woman's name was Alice Roth, and she was the wife of Philadelphia Bulletin sports editor Earl Roth. And Ashburn and Roth later became friends, as reported by Matt Rappa at. Uh, that balls out of here dot com. Oh so yeah, God. so so they became friends. So that's why I'm laughing because now it's funny. Yeah, <laughs> but, I mean it's not funny to get hit in the nose, but oh my God. Oh, I bet that hurts. What are the fucking chances uh, that's of her getting crazy hit? Poor, odds? Poor lady. I know it. I wonder if she never went to a game again or just I wouldn't wore a helmet. But I wouldn't anyway. Yeah, you. Um, I remember you almost got hit by a ball one time at the Mudhens because yeah. you were talking and wa- we were walking and. Everybody was looking at the foul ball except for you, and I was like, "Oh my god, you are gonna! If anybody's gonna get hit, it's gonna be you." Because you're not gonna pay any attention. No. All right, August eighteenth, nineteen fifty-seven. Amelia Wershoven sets a rec- uh, the record of female, the longest ball thrown by a female throwing a baseball. A baseball, okay. Two hundred and fifty-two feet four and a half inches god i i couldn't throw 10 feet probably i don't know if you could even come close to amelia wershoven's no record. of course not i'm just saying i couldn't even probably do 10 feet so i would just recommend you don't talk shit about amelia Wershoven, no i wouldn't play around it say. so just keep her name out, out uh, your my mouth. filthy mouth yeah uh august 28 1957 stupid idiot democrat strom thurmond Holds the record for the longest filibuster on this date by a lone senator at 24 hours and 18 minutes. And you want to guess what he was opposing? School seg- desegregation. The Civil Rights Act. Oh, the Civil Rights Act. Just, yeah. yeah. So because of that, he, yeah. he goes on a 24-hour Was it a talking racist, filibuster? Yeah, talking yeah. filibuster where he just for 24 hours and 18 minutes, he went on and on about how racism is the best. Pretty uh, much. Oh, here we go. The dogs yeah, don't like that story. Yeah, the dogs don't like that. He also opposed ending segregation, uh, and in 1964 he became a Republican, because that's when the Republicans became the racist that's ones right. in 1964, and they've stayed they that switched. way. They've stayed Wait, that way places. ever since. Yep. Um, but they could always switch back, which is why I refuse to pick a party. Yeah. Boom. Uh, okay, and that's the end of July and August 1957, and that's also the end of this episode yeah, of American Timeline. Get your tits out. By History for Church, yes, by by all means, when this podcast episode is over, you know the custom. If you're a listener, you're supposed to get your tits out, no that's matter right. where you are. If you're listening in a car, if you're listening on a bus, it's time to get your tits out because the podcast episode is over. And it's time to get out of here, Chuck And if you don't have tits... You know, everybody's got tits. Your nipples count as tits. That's Everyone right. has tits. Well, some people don't. Some people have the nipples removed, probably. From what? Some people were born without nipples, I'm sure. And what? if you were born without nipples, then take your pants off and take a dump in public. Wouldn't it look weird? <laughs> no. So yeah, a torso weird. with no nipples? It would look weird to take a dump in public. No, I mean a torso with no nipples. I'm sure, yeah. It would look weird. Isn't that what, like when they have a mastectomy, don't they take No, they don't take your nipple off. I think they do. No. And plus, they reconstruct it anyways. Not always. Pretty much. All right. Time to go. The dogs, dogs. The dogs are in WrestleMania dogs are pissed. 3 Time here. to go. I'm not sure. So if you know about what happens with mastectomies, tweet us. Nobody's going to do that. A history for George. We love you. Love did, y'all. Did you say Chuck Berry? That Chuck yep, Berry thing? I did it. Oh, Chuck Berry's in Set the it. bathroom. So. Bye. Thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been American Timelines by History for Jerks. And we actually love you. We love listeners. We love you. Actually, more than a friend.
Matt Truman Ego Trip is the greatest band of all time. Buy their music.